Part 1, Section 2 of The Sinking of the Miramac by Richmond Pearson Hobson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1, The Scheme and the Preparations. Section 2, containing Arrival at Santiago and Reconnoitering, Inspecting the Merrimac, Hundreds of Volunteers, Chaos on the Merrimac, Trouble with Anchors and Chains, Final Preparations under Difficulties, the Merrimack's flag, trial trip and inspection, the first attempt off at last, the recall and postponement. The next day, June 1st, as we went on deck very early, we made out the flying squadron in the distance. As the New York stood down toward the Brooklyn, there off the starboard bow stood the Moro, frowning down on the narrow entrance. Back in the distance rose the mountains beyond the city. From aloft we could see the military tops of the Vizcaya and the Cristobal Colon behind the cliffs of Smith's Key and Punta Gorda Neck. As the New York passed the bearing in line with the inner channel, a shot came out at long range. It fell short, of course, but it spoke challenge and defiance. We passed the Merrimack lying to the eastward, locked with the Massachusetts coaling alongside, and stopped near the Brooklyn. Commodore Schley and his flag lieutenant, J. H. Sears, came off, and were met by Admiral Sampson and his chief of staff, Captain Chadwick, and flag lieutenant Staunton, and all went below to the Admiral's cabin. Soon the Admiral and the Commodore came on deck, and the Admiral called me aft. The Commodore pointed out the location of batteries as he had discovered them in the bombardment of the previous day. The sea batteries to the eastward and westward of the entrance could be made out, though dimly, but the batteries described by the Commodore as lying on the slope of Socapa, the west bank of the channel, could not be located. The galleries and gun ports of Moro could be seen, but Estrella Point and the heights of Charuca and Punta Gorda necks were obscured. I asked for a steam launch to go in closer to reconnoiter, but my request was declined. After the Commodore left, the New York stood further to the westward to get on the bearing, Estrella Point, north 34 degrees east, the course for entering. The Admiral, the Chief of Staff, the Navigator, and I then went up on the forward bridge. There was a division of opinion as to what was really Estrella Point. It was then decided to let me take the steam launch and go in to reconnoiter, and the launch was hoisted out and the fires were lighted. The quartermaster, having reported the masts and funnel of a small craft behind a neck of land to the westward, the New York dropped the launch and stood down to investigate the craft, which proved to be one of our auxiliaries. When steam was up on the launch, we headed in, though we were delayed by the feed pump getting out of order. We soon were able to make out distinctly the batteries to the eastward of Moro and those to the westward of the entrance. They were not completed, and work seemed to be going on. Uh, all question about Estrella Point disappeared, and I found two good ranges on the mountains behind to help in running in, and mentally photographed the view, noting especially the high points that would aid in recognizing the entrance at night. We avoided some objects awash, that looked as though they might be range buoys, but stood for the most part straight up the course for entering. 
This course leads nearer the western shore, and one of the crew reported seeing men in the bushes, and then a rifle bullet passed overhead. The launch was slowed down, and directions were given to have a full head of steam, with plenty of water in the boiler, in order to be independent of the laboring feed pump, and the coxswain was ordered to stand by to go about. One of the crew now reported a signal flying from the New York, which had come back. It was the general recall. I had desired to find out something about the batteries on the slopes of Socapa, and to get some sure mark on the western side as a guide in entering at night. It soon became evident, however, that the batteries on the slopes could not be seen without actually entering, while the bushes came down to the water's edge on the west, and no mark for guidance could be found. Only the Moro side would be distinct, and the course to pass would have to be regulated by estimating the distance from the Moro. Fortunately, on this side the water was deep and would permit of passage close aboard. The launch turned and stood out slowly, and, when well away, went full speed for the New York. It was now nearly noon. The Merrimack had drifted farther to the eastward. Signal had been sent to all the vessels calling for an electric machine for firing torpedoes, and the torpedoes were well in hand. But half the day was gone, and no preparations had been made on the Merrimack. The New York stood back at speed, and shortly afternoon stopped nearby. Boson Mullen and I went off in a pulling boat and crossed over the Massachusetts to the Merrimack, where coaling was going on at all the hatches. The officers of the Merrimack were at luncheon, the captain and the other officers forming a single mess. Everybody was completely surprised when I announced the purpose of the admiral to have the Merrimack sunk in the channel that night, and I was pelted with questions. Colin was to continue. The Merrimack's crew were already more or less fatigued, and as they would have their hands full in getting their effects away, could give but little, if any, assistance. I made a rapid inspection. The bow anchor weighed 14,000 pounds. The hold contained about 2,300 tons of coal, which lay heaped up against some of the bulkheads where the torpedoes would be placed. A signal was sent to the New York to send over one watch, or half her deck force, and forty coal heavers, the deck force to be employed in preparing the anchors, chains, belt, and hogging lines, the coal heavers to shovel the coal away from the sides at the points of location of the torpedoes, to prevent interference with their action in blowing in the sides, as well as the clogging of the ruptures. While waiting for the men from the New York, the boatswain and I went below and located the bulkheads, taking tape measure distances to fix their positions accurately on the outside. Assistant Engineer R.K. Crank went with me through the boilers and engine rooms and agreed to the use of part of his own force to do the work of preparing the sea connections for flooding and of opening up the cargo ports and all openings throughout. When all the work was done, we were to go through for final inspection. The preparation of anchors and chains, belt and hogging lines, was explained in full to the boatswain. The starboard chain was to be roused up and ranged along the forecastle. the starboard anchor to be got over the bow, the port anchor to be unshackled and transported aft to the starboard quarter, the port chain being similarly transported the bow anchor to have sixty fathoms clear, 
and the stern anchor about forty fathoms, the last fifteen fathoms to have uh, the stops for breaking. We went into the forehold to look for gear, and found plenty in the Merrimack's supply. We selected eight-inch new manila for the long lengths of elastic hawser, and five-inch new manila for the stops. A large coil of new four-and-a-half-inch manila would answer admirably for the belt line, and eighteen-thread stuff for the hogging lines. As we expected the stripping of the ship to begin soon, we set this gear aside to prevent its falling into the hands of some boatswain's mate or other provident pillager. When I returned to New York to see about the personnel of the crew and the status of the torpedoes, the starboard watch from the New York had come over under Naval Cadet Boone, and forty coal heavers were on their way from the Brooklyn. Captain J. M. Miller, of the Miramac had given directions to his officers and crew to prepare to leave the ship, and was himself leaving to see the Admiral. In reply to the signal for an electric machine, a negative answer had come from all ships. There was not one in the squadron. It seemed a coincidence that the vessels that were known to have them were all north of Cuba. Batteries of cells would have to be depended on. The New York had only a few spare firing cells. The fleet was called upon. I requested Lieutenant Roller to take the matter in hand, get together the cells, allowing three or four times the number usually required for the eight-inch primers, arrange the cells for maximum efficiency, test all the cable for insulation, and actually fire trial primers under the conditions of use. While I was on the Merrimack, Assistant Engineer Crank had expressed a wish to go in with the ship and had recommended a machinist, Phillips, and a water-tender, Kelly, who had shown themselves competent and reliable, and who wished to go. Captain Miller, who expected to go in, had spoken in high terms of his quartermaster and coxswain, young Degnan. There was advantage in having men for the wheeled engines and the boilers from the Merrimack's crew, on account of their familiarity with the vessel, so I called the three men up, looked at them well, explained the nature of the mission, and asked if they wished to go. All replied affirmatively, so I decided to take them. The call for volunteers had been made by signal, and names were pouring in by the hundred. It may be said broadly that the bulk of the fleet was anxious to go. The admiral had thought that uh, perhaps it might be well to have a junior officer, and had asked for volunteers from the junior officers of the New York. The junior officer's mess responded en masse. Powell, one of my pupils at the Naval Academy, was on deck when I came on board and begged me to take him. Eggert, another of my pupils, saw me and pleaded to go. Men of the New York's crew pressed upon me and used all kinds of arguments to persuade me to take them. It was as though a great favor were being asked, and every means were taken to have it granted. Captain Miller had now returned to the Merrimack. When I was about to leave, the Admiral sent for me and said that Captain Miller claimed it as his right as commanding officer of the vessel to go in with the Merrimack, and that he did not see how his claim could be disregarded. My answer was, in effect, that I should be happy to serve in any capacity, but that it must be evident to all that Captain Miller could not be anything but a passenger, even if nominally in command being entirely unfamiliar with the details of the plans, which it was, of course, too late in the day to become properly acquainted with them, that I had carefully reduced the crew to a minimum 
and had made the duties the very simplest, and felt it would be unjustifiable, even wrong, to allow a single man in excess of the requirements, and for this reason had refused the junior officers and all others, that besides other considerations we should all certainly be overboard, that my men should be young, athletic, and used to exposure, that probably no one of the age of a commander would be equal to the physical strain, that if there should be a chance to escape we should certainly not abandon the captain, and his presence would probably entail the loss of all that when the situation was clear to the captain he surely would not insist on going however great his desire as he could not really consider that it was right or was his duty to go the admiral concluded that he would not allow the captain to go it was understood with the executive officer of the new york who was in charge of the list of volunteers that word would be sent as to the men to be selected I then left the New York with the understanding that notice would be sent when all was ready on the Merrimack, whereupon the Admiral would go on board to inspect. Matters on the New York detained me, and the afternoon had worn well along when I reached the Merrimack. The conditions on board can hardly be conceived. Orders had been given to strip the ship, and only a few hours remained in which to do it. Squads from various vessels were everywhere removing articles. The crew of the Merrimack were looking to their own effects. The gangways were piled with boxes, cans, and debris of all kinds, and a barrel of beer had got adrift. To my horror, the port bower chain had not been unshackled. The boatswain and his gang were at work on it, and still it resisted. The starboard anchor and chain were as yet untouched. The coal-heavers, misunderstanding the instructions given, had been shoveling coal from port to starboard. Men in the stripping squads were everywhere in the way. It was impossible to tell who belonged to the working squads and who did not. But a confusion existed, and under the circumstances would admit of but slight remedy. Even the gear laid aside for belt and hogging lines, stops and hawsers had been pillaged. It was evidently to be a desperate fight against time. The idea of getting the 14,000-pound anchor aft had to be abandoned, but there was a heavy stream anchor already aft and another forward. We slung the one forward from the cargo boom to the deck of the Massachusetts, which dropped aft. Then we took it up with a cargo boom aft and proceeded to lash the two stream anchors together, crown to ring, or tandem fashion, which would give the two combined as great holding power as the heavier bower anchor. When we started rousing up the starboard chain, the anchor windlass worked badly. Soon the port anchor chain was unshackled, and it was apparent that the heaviest work would come in getting the chain aft, for the fifteen-fathom lengths could not be unshackled, as the shackle pins could not be driven out, so the heavy chain, the very largest size manufactured, would have to be transported aft in one piece, the whole length of the ship. To save time, we started rousing this chain up without stopping the rousing up of the starboard chain. The windlass utterly rebelled. About thirty fathoms of the latter chain were already up, and it started back by the run into the locker. It was fairly heart-rending to see the chain go charging back, undoing the results of such hard work. More than half had run back before it could be checked. The port chain would have to wait until the starboard chain was completely up. 
The sun was setting before the heavier work could be begun, when finally the chain started up and after getting aft as far as the deckhouse would not budge further. I appealed to all the men from all the gangs. They took hold, some with their hands, some with the chain hooks, some with rope's ends. The chain started up, but soon stopped again. No effort could make it move a second time. Darkness was setting in. The search for lanterns showed that the strippers had preceded us in the lamp room. Only two or three lanterns could be found, and those were in bad condition. The men were nearly exhausted, having been worked without relief and without supper. We turned steam on, the after winches, determined to make them haul the chain aft, but no tackles could be found. All had been taken off. We used part of the coil for the belt line, and after breaking it several times, finally started the chain, and this measure gave promise of getting the required amount aft in course of time. Hogging lines had been started by means of a weight put over the bow in a span of uh, the line, carrying it below the keel, a man on each side walking aft outside till the desired point was reached. As bad fortune would have it, the lines already put over became entangled, and nearly all had to be hauled in and the work done over. Moreover, the strippers having pillaged the gear laid aside, as mentioned before, the stuff for hogging lines was found to be missing. In fact, the hawsers were just being started over the side, and the coil for the belt line was on deck when we caught and saved them. So material for the hogging lines had to be improvised by unreaving tackles from the cargo booms and by searching among the debris. The Massachusetts, after transporting the stream anchor aft, had shoved off, and with her departure the stripping abated. Now only a squad from the Texas and the force from the Brooklyn remained beside the men from the New York. The New York hailed and said she would send off the port watch to relieve the starboard watch. We had been drifting steadily to the eastward. The Texas and the Brooklyn were not in sight. The coal heavers could do no more work in the darkness below, so the two squads were sent to the New York with the New York starboard watch when the port watch came off. The steam launch had brought off the gunner with the torpedoes, batteries, and wire, and some dynamo men were sent for to help in running the wires. It was dark, for the moon was obscured, and we had little lantern light. But the men just arrived were fresh, and the interfering groups were gone, so we could work with more organization. Cadet Boone took a squad and started the belt line, and when the belt line was around at the height of the rail, where the torpedoes were to be attached, he continued with the same men to get the hogging lines in place. Assistant Engineer Crank had been at work with his men below, and now reported the cargo ports opened and the sea connections prepared all ready for inspection. I went below with him and found things in excellent shape. The nuts were off the bonnet of the main injector, a strut held the bonnet in place, and it required only a blow to knock the strut out and release the bonnet, which was under a head of about fifteen feet of water pressure. The smaller connections, and also the condenser discharge which went overboard below the water line, would be readily cut in two by the blow of an axe. All openings, hatches, manhole covers, etc., were opened. At Mr. Crank's suggestion, we had already admitted about 700 tons of water to the double bottom. Lieutenant Gilmer of the Merrimac 
who had been lending a hand during the day, took charge of the stern anchors. As soon as these should be lashed together and slung over the side, and the chain bent on and ranged clear, the boatswain was to take most of the men to get the bower anchor over, and put on the stops and hawsers. The gunner and his own men and the dynamo men were leading the wires to the positions on the rail, ready to connect with the short lengths coming out of the torpedoes. Last of all, the torpedoes were to be attached and secured to belt-line and hogging-lines at the height of the rail, where it was intended they should remain for inspection by the admiral. I had hoped to report the vessel ready by midnight, June 1 and 2, but this hope had been abandoned. Toward ten or eleven o'clock the different tasks were advancing concurrently, and there seemed to be a fighting chance of being ready before moon set when the gunner reported an insufficient quantity of wire. A mistake had been made in the quantity supposed to be at hand. The New York had remained near us, and I hailed for her steam launch and went on board, but no wire was to be found. The vessels of the squadron were out of sight, but a Norwegian steamer, fitted out for cable service, lay in the distance, and I ran down to her in the launch. She did not have what we wanted, but had any quantity of an insulated wire that would answer. We took a coil and came back to the New York for items of which a memorandum had been left, such as life preservers, boat equipment, signal cord, new axes for cutting the anchor lashings, sizing stuff for securing the torpedoes, an ensign, etc. With regard to the ensign, I had asked Captain Miller about the flag of the Merrimack. He said that he had already considered the matter, but had found that the strippers had taken off the ensign and the contents of the signal chest and even the signal halyards. In fact, the men had been so keen for relics and souvenirs that nothing seemed to have escaped. He said that he had, however, an enormous flag, blue field or background with Maine across it in large letters, which he proposed to have bent on. But I was particularly anxious for a large national flag, and put it down on the list of items for the executive officer to get us on the New York. I was a little afraid they would not let us have the flag, so I asked the executive officer not to say anything about it to Captain Chadwick until we were gone, and told him that I should not hoist it while running in, or while doing so could in any way affect the success of the effort, but that I did wish very much to hoist it after firing the torpedoes as the vessel sank. The executive officer was not convinced, and his instinct of the risk involved was true. For though the captain let me have the flag without asking any questions, and it was bent on the halyards at the bridge ready for hoisting, it was never hoisted, for after the work was done and the Merrimack was sinking, and a strong impulse set in to have the flag flying, it was clear, lying at the muzzles of the enemy's guns, that any movement to hoist it would betray our position and cost the lives of us all. My responsibility for the group forbade me to make the attempt. Before leaving the New York, the captain said that we had drifted twelve or fifteen miles to the eastward. It was then nearly at twelve o'clock, and it was necessary to start to the westward without delay. The admiral had ordered the Mayflower and one of the other vessels to place themselves on a range with the course into the harbor to serve for a starting point. 
The admiral was to come off to inspect with the boats that came to take off the men to the New York. Montague, the only member of the volunteer crew not already on board, came off with me. While on the Merrimack, Mullen, the boatswain, had asked to go. As the letting go of the bow anchor would be especially perilous with the running out of the chain and the breaking of the stops and hawsers, and no one would appreciate the danger better than the boatswain, he was accepted. About the same time Charette came to me and said that he had put down his name with the volunteers before leaving the New York, and he hoped I would take him, for he had served with me when I was a midshipman on the Chicago. I remembered his service well, and good service it was. He had been in the dynamo room, and was afterward gunner's mate, and was the very man to help with the torpedoes and be at hand for anything that might arise. This left only one more man to choose, the man to cut the lashing of the stern anchor. There would be advantage in having a man who could best handle the men in case Mullen and I did not appear. After consultation with the executive officer of the New York, Montague, the chief master at arms of that vessel, was selected, and the crew was complete. It was about midnight when the launch reached the Merrimack. After discharging, it was sent back to the New York, and preparations were made for getting underway. It had been arranged that we should have a trial spin before going in. Mr. Crank would remain in charge of the engines till the last moment, having a good head of steam and everything in shape. The run to the westward would answer for the trial, and directions were given for a full-speed run at the highest safe and sure speed. We were under way by half-past twelve, and stood to the westward, making fifty-two revolutions, approaching nine knots. The New York stood on also, but was soon left behind. She had the steam launch in tow, and apparently could not tow it faster without losing it. The last few hours had seen large progress all along the line. The stern anchor was over the side, and the chain was being bent on and ranged clear. It was so situated that in coming under strain it would tear the bulwarks out, tear up the hatch combing, and bring up against the mainmast. With the length of chain extending to the chain lockers at the bow, large elasticity would be obtained. The bower anchor was over the bow, slung and lashed, breaking stops were being put on, eight stops between forty and sixty fathoms, and the hawser was in place. It was not practicable to take the hawser over the deck-house, as it was only about seventy-five feet long, so another of the same length was added, both to be broken at sixty fathoms, before the rigidity of the anchor fastenings should bring up. One of the hawsers carried the stops, which were far enough apart to allow the hawser to spring back and recover its elasticity after each strain. The belt-line was around and at the height of the rail. The hogging-lines were in place. The gunner, having reported that at the final test on the New York the battery could fire only six primers, the six most important positions were selected, and the torpedoes were secured in place while the wiring went on. A mist had come over the moon. The coastline was obscure. A heavy black cloud appeared in the southeast, and the horizon was thickening to the south and southwest, and began to threaten the last hours of the moon. Soon the New York was out of sight. Apparently she was making only five or six knots. Captain Miller was sitting on the bridge. Degnan was at the wheel. 
The ship replied well to the helm, and the gallant captain told about her steering and maneuvering qualities and other virtues, still expecting to go in with his ship. He had let me take complete charge, and I had uh, not thought it necessary to tell him of the admiral's final decision. The light became so dim that the headlands could scarcely be made out with the night glasses. About two o'clock a craft was sighted ahead, then another, on a th southwesterly line in bearing with the first. We concluded that they must be the range vessels, so the helm was put up and we stood out to turn upon their line of bearing from seaward, keeping on the range in readiness for the start after the New York should arrive. One of the craft began to show up an intermittent light. Was it a private signal? I had not been notified of any signal to be expected from a range vessel, and gave no reply, but kept pointed in toward the craft. It seemed as though the New York had lost us. It must have been nearly three o'clock before her boats came alongside and Admiral Sampson came on board. It had been decided, with a short time remaining, not to wait for his inspection of the torpedoes, and the hogging lines had been hauled down, and the last ones aft were being hauled down when he came on board and inspected. He said he thought we were well out, probably five or six miles, so I asked that the torpedo boat should go and find out what the unknown craft were. When it returned, it reported that they were vessels belonging to the press. The one that had showed the light was uh, perhaps simply a little timid with an idea of being run down. The admiral carefully inspected the anchor and chain aft and on the forecastle. Everything was in readiness for letting go, blocks under the lashings with axes at hand. The wiring was complete and responded to the test, the firing ends being on the starboard side of the bridge, ready to make contact. Montague and Charette had led off the signal cords, and with the boatswain had got the lifeboat out and put in the arms and equipment. The boatswain considered that the boat in question would tow better alongside than astern, a long line being got out from forward, another from abreast the boat. When the after hogging lines had been hauled home, the New York's men were ordered into the boats. Before leaving, Cadet Boone asked earnestly to be allowed to remain, but he had to be refused like the others. The Admiral went on the bridge to wait till the men were off, and was the last to leave. On coming on board, the Admiral had gone up to the bridge, and as he spoke to Captain Miller, I heard an exclamation of disappointment from the latter. Though bitterly chagrined, the generous Captain came up to say a kind word and wish us success. Assistant Engineer Crank, who was still in the engine room, was to remain on board till the last stretch, when he was to be taken off by the torpedo boat that would accompany us to that point. The moon had now gone behind a bank rising up for the horizon. It must have been beyond its setting time before the Admiral left. When I had referred to the lack of light and the obscurity of the coastline, the Admiral gave reassurance as to the conditions when we should be closer, based on the principle that the intensity of light varies inversely as the square of the distance. But the absolute necessity of adequate light had been growing on me. The Admiral said good-bye with a simple word of kindness. With us who knew him, such a word from Admiral Sampson would outweigh a volume. When the launch shoved off with the Admiral, its propeller fouled one of our lines, and it was probably half an hour in clearing. 
It must indeed have been after four o'clock when we finally started. Dawn had not tinged the east, but it was certainly near at hand. We started up slowly, then at full speed. The lifeboat charged out from the side, ready to capsize. We slowed down and shortened the breastline. As we started ahead, again, it charged back and forth as before. It was evident that the boat could not be towed at full speed. Time was pressing, and it had been questionable from the first if there would be a chance to use the boat. We must approach at full speed for success, so I decided not to slow down again. The boat plunged back and forth, and then with a wide sheer capsized and broke adrift, floating away bottom up. We were now clear. The men, stripped to underclothes, put on revolvers and belts and life preservers, took their stations, and tied the signal cords to their wrists. Soon the vessels of the squadron showed up, rather to the eastward. Then we caught the outline of the Moro itself. There was only a short distance to stand to the westward to make the course for entering, north 34 degrees east. A rose tinge appeared in the east. Day was breaking. We should find ample light to enter by. Suddenly a hail came from close aboard on the port side. The torpedo boat, the porter, came tearing up, and Lieutenant Fremont, her commander, announced that the Admiral directed the Merrimack to return. It would not do to disobey, but would not the Admiral reconsider? I know that light was necessary in any case and felt that we could make the entrance. My reply was a request to the Lieutenant to return to the flagship and ask the Admiral to let us go on as I felt that we could get in. The Merrimack did not slacken. It was arranged that in case the Admiral should consent, the torpedo boat should have four red lights turned on the New York's signal hoist. I told Charette to keep a lookout for the red lights, and we stood on. The torpedo boat reached the flagship and started back at full speed, but no red lights appeared. The Admiral was inexorable. We should have to wait another day. End of Part 1, Section 2